Good morning, family and friends. We are starting in Mark's Gospel, uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1. We just completed Revelation, and that was so interesting, uh, so overwhelmingly interesting. And um, sometimes I almost feel like I need to go over it again because there are so many references to look up. It's just that one sitting, it's hard to do. But you know what? It's as as we go, we grow. the The Lord unfolds as we study every book. The Lord is always unfolding new things, and uh, not that there's going to be any revelation that we don't know, because He He just allows us to know what we can handle. I guess I would put it that way. So God's servant is here. The gospel is neither a discussion nor is it a a debate. It's an announcement. Mark wasted no time giving that announcement for it's found in the opening words of his book. And then Matthew, he wrote about genealogy. Uh, Luke focused mainly on the sympathetic ministry of the Son of Man and then... um, Luke also, he emphasized Christ's humanity. Let's see. John's gospel begins with a statement about eternity. John wrote to prove the whole world, prove to the whole world that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. John 20, verse 31. So the subject of John's gospel is the deity of Christ, but the object of his gospel is to encourages readers to believe on on this savior and receive the gift of eternal life so really where does mark's gospel fit in mark mark wrote for the romans and his his theme is jesus christ the servant if we had to pick a key verse in this gospel it would probably have to be mark 10:45 that says for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the fact that Mark wrote with the Romans in mind helps us understand his style and his approach. The emphasis in this gospel is on activity. Mark describes Jesus as he busily moves about from place to place, and meets the physical and spiritual needs of all kinds of people. So one of Mark's favorite words is in the in his book was straightway, meaning immediately. And he uses that word, he uses it over 41 times. Mark does not always record many of, of the sermons of the Lord because he emphasizes more on what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. So he reveals Jesus as God's servant, sent to minister to suffering people and to die for the sins of the world. Mark gives no account of our our Lord's birth, nor does he record a genealogy. And um, Mark shares three important facts about God's servant in, in verses 1 through 11. He records the testimony of several dependable witnesses 
to assure us that Jesus is all that he claims to be. John Mark is the author of the book, is the first witness, verse 1. He states boldly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is, it's likely that Mark was an eyewitness of some of the events that he wrote about. He lived in Jerusalem with his mother Mary and their home. Their home was a meeting place for believers in the city. And they would get together, and you can find that in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 19. I believe that's the home that Peter went to when the angel set him free from jail, from prison. There are several scholars believe that Mark was the young man described in Mark 14, since Peter called Mark, quote, my son, in 1 Peter 5.13. It's... It, is probably that it was Peter who led Mark to faith in Jesus Christ. So John Mark was probably Peter's spiritual son, is what we would call him today. Church tradition states that Mark was Peter's interpreter, so that the Gospel of Mark reflects the personal experiences and witness of Simon Peter. Most of us know that the gospel simply means the good news to the Roman, to the Romans Mark's special target audience, gospel meant joyful news about the emperor, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news that God's son has come into the world and died for our sins. It's the good news that our sins can be forgiven, that we can belong to the family of God and one day we can go to live with God in heaven. It is the announcement of victory over sin, death, and hell. See 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The second witness in verses 2 and 3, Mark cites two quotations from the Old Testament prophets, Malachi 3, 1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, where, where it says, make a way. The word messenger and voice refer to John the Baptist here, the prophet God sent to prepare the way for his son. Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1. So in ancient times before, say, a king came and visited any part of, of the area, a messenger was sent before him to prepare the way. This included both, say, repairing the roads and preparing the people for that king. So by, by calling the nation to repentance, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. In um, John the Baptist, let's see. In Isaiah and Malachi, they join voices declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Jehovah God. John the Baptist is the next witness in verses 4 through 8. So Jesus called him the greatest of the prophets in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15. In John's dress, in his manner of life, and, and the message of repentance, 
John identified uh, so much with Elijah. We see that in 2 Kings. We see it in Malachi chapter 4, Matthew 17. So the wilderness where John ministered is the rugged wasteland along the western shore of the Dead Sea. John was telling people that uh, symbolically that they were in a spiritual wilderness, which they were, far worse than the physical wilderness that their ancestors had endured for 40 years. John called the people to leave their spiritual wilderness, trust their their Jesus, trust their Joshua is actually what they called him, which means Jesus, and enter into their inheritance. So John was careful to magnify Jesus and not himself, and we need to take note to that, that we always are pointing people to Jesus, that we are always um, careful to magnify the things that God does through us and, and give all the glory to God. John would baptize repentant sinners in water out there, declaring, you know, after declaring in the wilderness that they should repent, he would baptize them in water. But he said the coming one would baptize them with the Spirit. And, um, you can find that in Acts 1, 4, and 5. But this did not mean that John's baptism was unauthorized. So, or, or that water baz- baptism would one day be replaced by being baptized in the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit. This did not mean that. Rather, John's message and baptism were preparation so that the people would be ready to meet and to trust the Messiah. So our Lord's apostles were no doubt baptized by John, I would imagine. See John 4, 1 through 2, Acts 1, 21 through 26. The Father and the Holy Spirit are Mark's final witnesses to the identity of God's servant. See verses 9 through 11. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came on him as a dove, and the Father spoke to him from heaven and identified his beloved Son. But note this, that the people there did not hear the voice, they did not see the dove, but Jesus and John did. See John 1, verse 29 through 34. So the word beloved not only declares affection, but it also carries the meaning of the only one. So the Father's announcement from heaven reminds us of Psalms 2, verse 7, and also Isaiah 42, verse 1. Mark did not write his book about just any Jewish servant. He wrote his book about the Son of God who came from heaven to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is the servant, but he is most a, a most unusual servant. It, it is the servant who prepares the way for others and announces their arrival. But in this case, others prepared the way for Jesus and announced that he had come. Even heaven itself took note of him. The, the servant 
is God the Son. The servant's authority, as we see in chapter 1, verses 12 through 28, we expect a servant to be under authority. We expect a servant to take orders, but God's servant here is exercising authority and he's giving orders, even to demons, and his orders are obeyed. So Mark describes in this section three scenes that reveal our Lord's authority. And uh, the scene number one would be the temptation in the wilderness. And Mark does not give us a full account of the temptation as did Matthew. Matthew gave a full account of it and also Luke did, but Mark adds some vivid details that others omitted where he said, the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Now he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And this, this is a strong word that Mark used 11 times to describe the casting out of demons. It is impelled in the New American Version, the New International Version. But this does not suggest that our Lord was unwilling or he was unafraid or that he was afraid to face Satan. Rather, it is Mark's way of showing the intensity of the experience. For Mark, no time was spent uh, basking in the glory of the heavenly voice of the Father God or in the presence of the heavenly dove, the Holy Spirit that lit upon Jesus. The servant had a task to perform and he immediately went to do it. So for Mark, Mark presents us with two symbolic pictures. Our Lord's 40 days in the wilderness remind us of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And then Israel failed when they were tested, but our Lord succeeded victoriously. Having triumphed over the enemy, Jesus could now go forth and call on new people who would enter into their spiritual inheritance. So the second picture is that of the last Adam. The first Adam was tested in a beautiful garden and failed, but Jesus was tempted in a dangerous wilderness and won the victory. So Adam lost his dominion, but Christ gained all dominion. It had been restored for all of us who trust him. See Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8. Jesus was with the wild beasts, and they did not harm him in that wilderness place. He gave a demonstration of that future time of peace and righteousness when the Lord shall return and establish his kingdom. See Isaiah 11, verse 9. And then scene 2 in verses 14 through 22. If ever a man spoke God's truth with authority, it was Jesus Christ. It's been said that the scribes spoke from authorities, but that Jesus spoke with authority. Mark was not recording here the the beginning of our Lord's ministry since he had already ministered in other places. He's telling us why Jesus left Judea and came to Galilee. 
Herod had arrested John the Baptist, and wisdom dictated that Jesus needed to relocate. And by the way, it was during this journey that Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman. We went over that in John chapter 4. That was so interesting how the Lord went out of his way to go that way to meet with that woman. If you didn't get a chance to study John chapter 4, I think it's entitled The Samaritan Woman. So our Lord's message was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And um, no doubt most of the Jews read political revolution into the phase kingdom of God, but that was not what Jesus had in mind at all. His kingdom had to do with his reign in the lives of his people. So it's a spiritual realm and not a political organization by any means. The only way to enter God's kingdom is by believing the good news, by being born again. And uh, most of us that have read the Bible know the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, 1 through 7. Where Jesus taught Nicodemus, the, a Pharisee, about being born again. The gospel is called the gospel of God because it comes from God and it brings us to God. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And because faith in the Savior brings you into his kingdom, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's the heart of it. Without his life, death, and resurrection, there would be no good news. There would absolutely be no good news. So Paul called it, actually, the gospel of the grace of God. See Acts 20, verse 24. Because there can be no salvation apart from grace. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Jesus preached that the people should repent, which meant change their minds and believe. See Acts 20, 21. Repentance alone is not enough to save us. Even though God expects believers to turn from their sins, we've got to put positive faith in Jesus Christ and believe his promise of salvation. We have to believe what Jesus did for us, the price that it paid for us, what it gained for us. So repentance without faith could become remorse, and remorse can actually destroy people. Because Jesus preached with authority, he was able to call men from their regular occupations and make them his disciples. Who else could interrupt four fishermen at their workplace and challenge them to leave their nets and follow him? Several months before, Jesus had already met Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they had come to trust him. And this was not their initial call to faith and salvation. It was actually their call to discipleship. And then the fact that Zebedee had hired servants suggests that his fishing business was successful and that he was a man of means. It also assures us that James and John did not mistreat their father when they answered the call of Jesus 
but with the help of these servants, Zebedee could still manage the business. Jesus did not invent the term fishers of men. I just, I just wanted to make a note of that because in that day, it was a common description of philosophers and of other teachers who captured the men's minds through teaching and through persuasion. They would bait the hook with their teaching and then they would catch disciples. It's likely as many as seven of our Lord's disciples were fishermen. Surely the good qualities of a successful fisherman would make for success in the difficult ministries of winning lost souls. It would take courage. It would take the ability to work together. It would take patience, energy, stamina, faith. It would take tenacity. So professional fishermen simply could not afford to be quitters or complainers. And they weren't. Jesus ministered not only in the in open air synagogues there in Mark chapter one. The Jewish synagogues developed during the nation's exile, when the people were in Babylon after the temple had been destroyed. Wherever there were ten Jewish men above the age of twelve, a synagogue could be organized. And the synagogue, let me explain that, was not a place of sacrifice. That was done at the temple. But it was a place of reading the scriptures, of praying, and of worshiping God. So the services were held not by priests, but by laymen. And the ministry was supervised by a board of elders that was could preside over that were presided over by a ruler. See Mark 5.22. So it was customary to ask visiting rabbis to come and read the scriptures and teach, which explains why Jesus had such freedom to minister in the synagogues. The Apostle Paul, as well, took advantage of this privilege. We see that in Acts chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 17. Our Lord had set up his headquarters in Capernaum, possibly in or near the home of Peter and Andrew. And as you see in Mark 1, verse 29, you may see the remains of a Capernaum synagogue when you visit the Holy land today when you go to visit there, but it's not the one in which Jesus worshipped. The people assembled for services on the Sabbath as well as on Mondays and Thursdays. I thought that was very interesting. Those are days that we don't usually have services, but have we have ours on Wednesdays. But the people assembled for services on not, not only Sabbath day, which was Some people say Saturday, some people say Sunday. I believe it's proven to be more Saturday, but we won't go there. As well as on Mondays and Thursdays. Being a faithful Jew, Jesus honored the Sabbath by going to the synagogue. And when he taught the word, the people were astonished at his authority. You 
You will discover as you read Mark's gospel that he delights in recording the emotional responses of people. Note, note how the emotions stand out in that particular gospel or how Mark brings them out. The congregation in the synagogue, he said, was astonished at his teaching. And he used the word amazed at his healing powers. So you, you even find Mark recording our Lord's amazement at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth in Mark 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. So then in verses 23 through 28, we wonder how many synagogue services that this man who was, who was demon-possessed, this is the next section here, a man that was demon-possessed, how long he'd been in the services uh, without anyone realizing he was demon demonized. It took the presence of the Son of God to expose the demon. And Jesus not only exposed him, but he also commanded him to keep quiet about his identity and to depart from the man. So Jesus cast him out. This, Jesus did not want him to go. He did not need the assistance of Satan and, and Satan's army to tell people who he was. So he told the man to go and go to the, um, the, um, to the priests and tell them. The demon certainly knew exactly who Jesus was and that he had nothing in common with him. The demon's use of plural pronouns shows how closely he was identified with the man that he demonized, with the man through whom he was speaking. He used terminology the demon did as uh, acknowledging Jesus of Nazareth and the Holy One of God. He also confessed great fear that Jesus might judge him and send him to the pit. You know, there are people today just like this demonized man in religious meetings able to tell anyone who Jesus is and even trembling with fear of judgment. Yet they're lost. See James 2 verse 19. So Jesus had commanded the devil the demon in the man to hold his peace to be muzzled and Jesus would use the same words when he was stilling the storm in Mark 4:39 then there was this one last convulsive attack by this demon and then he had to submit to the authority of God's servant and come out of the man the people in the synagogue were amazed and they were afraid. They realized that something had appeared on the scene, a new doctrine and a new power. Our Lord's words and works must always go together. See John verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. So the people kept talking about both these incidents. They talked about the fame of Jesus the fame of Jesus began to spread as they talked more and more about these, this, I almost want to say they considered it a new power. 
Our Lord did not encourage this kind of public excitement, lest they create problems with both the Jews and the Romans, and the Lord did not want to do that. Of course not. The Jews would want to follow him only because of his power to heal them, and the Romans would think he was a Jewish in Jewish insurrectionist trying to overthrow the government, and this was not the case at all. This actually, actually explains why so often uh, Jesus told people so often to keep quiet. I used to wonder about that when I would read the Bible but before studying it. It's like, why did he always tell people to be quiet? You would think he'd want them to go and just tell everybody. <laughs> and that's what I thought. Well, the fact that they did not obey actually created problems for him because uh, it created problems between the, the Jews and... Yeah, and all the trouble, all the talk going on. And then in chapter 1, verses 29 through 45, there were two miracles of healing, and they're described in this section of 29 through verse 45, excuse me. Um, Excuse me. It would appear that God's servant was at the beck and call of all kinds of people. And uh, Peter was a, a little bit shocked that Jesus was in such a hurry to get rid of everybody. But the, the Lord had been told to go and minister the gospel, and that's what he was going to do. So the two miracles here, one was at Peter and Andrew's house for their, the Sabbath meal, Peter's, uh, his wife had to care for her sick mother. She was unable to entertain them in the usual manner. So she was taking care of her mom. We don't know about the other disciples, but we do know that Peter was a married man, and Peter and Andrew not only brought their friends, James and John, home with them from the service, but they also brought the Lord home. So this is a good example for us to follow, actually. Don't leave Jesus at church. Bring him home with you. What a privilege it was, though, for Peter and his family to have the Son of God as a guest in their humble home. Before long, the guest became the host. And just as the the day the passenger in Peter's boat would become the captain, by faith the men told Jesus about the sick woman, no doubt expecting him to heal her. Well, that is exactly what he did do. The fever left her immediately. She was able to go into the kitchen. She was able to serve the Sabbath meal to each and every one of them. If you've ever, any of you have ever had a bad fever and felt how weak it makes you and how sick and how uncomfortable, it it would just, uh, it's totally amazing that she was healed in an instant. Not only that, she had her strength back and she was feeling good enough to get up and cook a meal for everyone immediately. She was able to serve them. When the Sabbath ended, 
At sundown, the whole city showed up at Peter's door. Because of the different miracles that had been done and the miracles that were everybody was out shouting about and talking about, they, uh, they brought the sick and they brought the afflicted. And, and the Lord, who was no doubt tired and weary, healed them all. But the Greek verb indicates that they kept on bringing people to him so that he must have gone to sleep very late that night. We have to note in Mark 1 verse 32 the clear distinction made between the diseased and the demonized because while Satan can cause physical affliction, listen to me here, when he can cause physical affliction, not all sickness is caused by demonic powers. So we need to know that. We need to uh, understand that, yeah, just because you get sick does not mean you have a demon. So there were late hours that they did not keep Jesus, though. Even though he was up late, he was praying for all the people, laying hands on all the people, and uh, setting them free from demons and healing them, I'm sure. Though he was up late into the late hours of the night, it didn't keep him from his appointed meeting with his father early the next morning. We read about that in Isaiah 50, verse 4. And for a prophetic description of God's righteous servant as he meets the father morning by morning. What an example for us to follow this is. So it's no, it's no surprise, really, that Jesus had such authority and power as his prayer life was so disciplined. I mean, he was with the Lord in prayer, or with his Father in prayer, constantly. And our Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. We should be walking in the kind of power that Jesus did. He said, actually, signs and wonders and miracles would follow us who believe. How many of us are seeing that? Anyway, back to uh, Peter and his surprise. Because all these people wanted uh, to see Jesus again, they wanted to hear his word, they wanted to experience his healing, Peter was surprised that Jesus didn't get up that morning or come back from prayer that morning eager and in a hurry to go meet with those crowds, but instead he left, and he left to go to other towns where he might preach the gospel. And as we read the word, the more that we read it, I, be- I believe that we begin to understand he had just spent time with the Father. He said, I only do what my Father tells me to do. Peter thought it was strange, but he didn't realize the shallowness of the crowds of their unbelief, of their lack of appetite even for the word of God. So Jesus said it was more important for him to preach the gospel in other places than to stay there and heal the sick. So he did not permit, and we need to make a note of this also, he did not permit popularity to change his priorities or his mandate from the Lord.
when you read the test for the Jesus um, healed the man of leprosy. Let me back up here. I think I missed part of this. In Leviticus chapter 3, lepers were supposed to keep their distance and warn everyone that they were coming, you know, lest other people would be defiled by leprosy. Remember, they had leper colonies where they separated the people from the lepers. The man knew that Jesus was able to heal him, but he was not sure that the master was willing to heal him. And lost sinners today have the same unnecessary concern. For God has made it abundantly clear to us he is not willing that sinners should perish. He's also made it very clear that he's not willing that he is willing that all men, all men, not some men, all men will be saved. See 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. When you read the test for the leprosy described in Leviticus 13, you can see how the disease is a picture of sin. As as it leprosy is it's like sin, it's deeper than the skin, it spreads, it defiles, it isolates, and it renders things fit only for the fire. So anyone who has never trusted the Savior is spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. The most important physical um, touch from the Lord we can ever receive the most important and I don't even know what word to use for it uh, imperative touch we can ever receive from the Lord is that of salvation is that of being born again that is the greatest miracle to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be transformed into his image So anyway, Jesus had compassion on the man and he healed him. He did it with his touch and he did it with his word. Possibly this might have been, since lepers weren't around people or touched by people, it might have been the first loving touch this leper had ever felt in a long time. And... um, So Jesus has commissioned him or took... Excuse me, told him to go to the priest and follow the instructions given in Leviticus 14 so that he might be declared clean and he might get his life back and his social life back and his religious life back into the community. However, the man disobeyed Jesus and he went and he, he couldn't keep it quiet. He went and he told everybody. The crowds that came to uh, help from Jesus created a serious problem for him and probably hindered him from teaching the word as as he had intended to do. See verse 38. The Holy Spirit, as we close here, cannot come on human flesh until first the blood of Christ has been applied to our flesh. So until we have been born again of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit cannot come and dwell within us and will not in any way until we invite Him. 
So we've got to learn some important spiritual lessons from this chapter. To begin with, if the Son of God came as a servant, then being a servant is the highest of all callings. We're never more like the Lord Jesus Christ than when we are serving others. And then second, God shares his authority with his servants. Only those who are under authority have the right to exercise authority. And then finally, if you're going to be a servant, be sure you have compassion because people will come to you for help and rarely ask if it's a convenient time. Yet what a privilege it is to follow the steps of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to meet the needs of others by being the one that has the compassion of God, to being that one that submitted to being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in closing, in chapter 1, let's rejoice in the fact of servanthood. Let's rejoice that we were even called to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.